The Indie Ball season is finally done. We have one last champion to crown. We're going to talk about that on this week's episode of the Indie Ball Report Podcast. Hey, all right, we are back. Episode number 186 of the Indie Ball Report Podcast. I'm Nick Keyswell, and we... Uh, it's a lighter week because everybody is pretty much done with their season, but we do have one championship series that started this week, ended this week, and, well, it's just appropriate to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely, and I think this episode, around like this time, like this specific one every year, it's kind of a bittersweet one mm. uh, because, you know, you go from talking, like there's always a lot of baseball to talk about for, you know, five months. But uh, and then when it finally when it finally wraps up, uh, you know it's a, a little bit bittersweet. But you know what? I mean, still plenty to talk about in this uh, in this Lancaster versus High Point series. I, I have to say though about that series coming in, I had no idea who was going to win that series. I thought it was a super evenly matched series, and and I think it just shows like how like you can't. It's so hard to predict like any playoff series it doesn't matter like what level what league you're talking about because i mean we've been wrong on so many predictions like in in a bunch of leagues this year and then when you when it comes to when it comes like to the atlantic league series i'm like all right this is gonna this is a total toss-up i'm not putting myself in any position because both these teams are really good i have no idea who's gonna win and it just didn't turn out like that so i i think the lesson that i've learned is you, you just, I mean, of course, you got to make predictions because it's fun. But, I mean, so many of these are, like, best of three in, in any ball that we've seen in the playoffs. Obviously, Atlantic League, best of five. But when you talk about these wild card series with, in, like, Major League Baseball this year, yeah, like, you cannot, I, it doesn't matter what the matchup is. You cannot say, like, oh, yeah, like, I'll just use, like, whoever loses the NL East as an example, like, playing, like, the Padres who have been struggling forever. And like who've been like a mediocre team for two months, yeah. and they're gonna play. They're gonna have to go on the road and play either the Braves or the Mets. Like, yeah, all right, the Braves and the Mets are just gonna roll through. Like, you, this proves you can't say that. However, like this series, when thought it was gonna be close, well, it ended up not being really close. Yeah, and it is right. You are right. It is kind of like a bittersweet thing. Just go back to the beginning of that. Because we get so used to talking about all this. And honestly, it's kind of hectic during the year where it's like, okay, we got so much to talk about. And then you just hit the point where it's, okay, now there's nothing. And you are right where it's incredibly difficult to try and predict what is going to happen in these series. I mean, how we were predicting to see, you know, who's going to come out of the last ones last week when we put that show up at the beginning of this past week on Monday. You know, I even said, like, oh, it's going to be, you know, Southern Maryland and uh, Gastonia, I believe is what I said. Or at the very least, I said Gastonia was going to end it in four. And then, what do you know, high point points are taking it in five. So all of a sudden, you know, it, everything changes on a dime real quick. So, you know, you really can't say one way or the other how it's going to go because of, you know, just like what we saw here, where you have two teams that, I think it's fair to say we're not really expected to be at this point. Perhaps in the beginning part of the year, that first half, we were saying, oh, high point, you know, they have a good chance at it. But, you know, back in June, beginning of July, 
the Atlantic League was a much different landscape. We still weren't sold in Gastonia being the team that they wound up being and everything like that. So, you know, it uh, it winds up being how it is. And obviously, uh, Lancaster is, you know, they weren't really supposed to be here. They weren't supposed to get that far. I think we all kind of were in agreement of like, okay, well, we have, you know, Southern Maryland definitely deserves to be here. You have Gastonia. No one's going to argue that they deserve to be here. You know, uh, then High Point was kind of the team where they did very well in that first half. They were supposed to wind up getting there. And then that last spot, you know, it was kind of more up for grabs. Nobody really knew who it was going to be. There was no real clear-cut team to kind of jump up and take it. And uh, we all just kind of were like, oh, well, maybe it'll be Long Island that kind of comes out of nowhere and takes it. And then Lancaster winds up pulling that card and doing that well and then getting to this point where they wind up kind of being the obvious other team. And, you know, we're obviously going to talk about the championship series and whatnot, but, you know, I do want to just park a couple seconds here to talk about the two teams that didn't wind up getting to that championship series before we really dive in on it. And that is Gastonia and Southern Maryland. Before we get to Southern Maryland, I think Gastonia is just a little bit more interesting given the way that their uh, series or season kind of ended, which was really kind of a back and forth type of battle, you know, where you have just trading blows with an in-state rifle you've played, what, like 30 times or so this past year. It's just a constant uh, matchup with High Point. And I think we were all kind of expecting Gastonia to come out of that. And High Point obviously had other plans, you know, when they uh, when they played them last. It is kind of interesting how that uh, how that series wound up working out. Right, and I mean, again, it just shows like it's so hard to predict any postseason series. Uh, and I think both of us kind of expected Gastonia to, to roll the, the same way they kind of did to high point most of the regular season. But I mean, listen, it was, it was a really close series throughout, you know, a couple and, uh, kind of a back and forth, um, last game as well. And, uh, like the, the strike three call at the end of the game, mm. borderline. You'd say borderline. Yeah, I'd say the game five one is borderline. Yeah, it's borderline. But again, like you, you can't put the entire series on one call yeah. at all. You, you can't do that. So it was. I. I mean, credit to High Point. They stepped up uh, in when they needed to, uh, and you know that's. I think you also. I guess it's not as big of a deal in indie ball as it is in like other sports, but you also had a team in Gastonia. Who really hasn't been? <laughs> who really hasn't been um, on that kind of stage before? Yeah. Um, and for like you compare that to High Point, like yeah, is that the first playoff appearance in franchise history? Sure, but you have a you have a manager in Jamie Keith who is, <laughs> I mean, He's... he when you talk about a, a, a manager with championship winning pedigree, I mean, you have, I mean, Jamie Keith is the epitome of that. Yeah. So. Uh, with all, of course all of this time with, with the boulders and in the Can-Am League and stuff like that, so I think that uh, I think you wonder if that could have played somewhat of a role in making it the the series more even than I guess the talent on either side would lead you to believe. Um, however, I, I think you got to give a lot of the credit to High Point because High Point 
They, they they played a great series. They didn't make many mistakes. They pitched really well, uh, which is something they haven't done most for uh, for you know a good amount of the year. But they when it mattered most, they got some good starts when they needed to, uh, and it just wasn't enough for for Gastonia in the end. But I mean that was still a, a unbelievable series. But uh, in a best of five, anything can happen, and that's exactly what did happen. Yeah, and it it kind of just shows how baseball works you know obviously game four wasn't particularly close it was 6-1 it kind of followed more of the mold we saw in the first three games where it was more of a okay one team blows out the other team and just kind of goes back and forth like that and then you have you know that last game five there where it looks a lot like we're going to get more of the same in that first inning you see five runs put up for high point gastoni gets one back but high point doesn't let him hold that uh, narrowing gap very long to get the run back themselves in the bottom half so it's 6-1 then turns into 7-1 and now it really is looking like a blowout kind of going into that top of the sixth and then Gastonia puts up five unanswered so now it's all of a sudden a much much different looking ball game here when you narrow down that gap that quickly and it's only a one run advantage then Gastonia gets it back in the top part of the eighth, ties up the game. High Point manages to squeeze it out, get that last that last run of the game in the bottom of the eighth. And, you know, now it looks like a lot more of a closer game, a lot more interesting of a game going into that ninth inning. And then obviously you mentioned the, the call strike three there at the very end where you've had if you're gastonia you have some very choice words because they had to just kind of go over for those that are unaware of it uh they drew a walk then there was a couple of strikeouts so then they got down to their final strike uh hit by pitch put two on so one on scoring position at that point keep in mind here that run represents the uh, game tying run and then the go-ahead run would be on first. You have a batter up right then and there. Full count. Two outs. And a ball that looked awfully outside to me was what rung him up on uh, strike three. And uh, that ended the series. And the way I looked at it was it's probably still too close to call. Although from... It being an inside pitch, I imagine it's also significantly more difficult to get anything decent on. So I get that's why you're not swinging, but I still feel like you got to swing in that situation. That being said, too, it also is way too close of a pitch to end a season on. I, as an um, If I was an umpire, I probably don't call that one a strike because it's not definitive enough of a strike for me to end the season on. Maybe enough to end an at-bat on, but not to end a a season on. So I probably would have said ball four on that. Let him go down and then, you know, next batter up there. I understand the implications of it because then, you know, if, you know, you think it could have been a strike, you don't call the strike, bases are loaded, somebody else comes up, home run, all of a sudden now, it feels like you job somebody else out of a season if they don't turn that back around and, you know, put up the runs to either tie the game or win the game there. So, like, I, I understand both angles of this, but in the end, it just, it it was a very questionable strike three. 
Honestly, I think, you know, as an umpire, it's hard to make calls based on the implications. Hmm. And I know it's, it's easy to do because they're human. But I think that uh, when you look at the situation, it's hard, it's hard to, you know, in my opinion, to expect an umpire to think about anything other than, is this pitch a ball or strike? Mm. And I think you're, I think as an umpire, you're doing yourself a disservice to a lot of people if you're thinking about, well, what does this call mean? Like, did I maybe blow a call for this team before? Um, and I maybe give, like, I don't know, this guy a little bit off the plate last inning that I hadn't been giving him most of the game. I think it's hard when you start thinking about all those factors. I think you're thinking about it too much. At the end of the day, the the umpire made the call, and whether it's you know whether it's right or wrong, the game didn't come down to one call. Yeah, uh, and just like the game never comes down to to the game is never really truly truly decided by one play. Um, I just think it's hard to it's hard to expect an umpire to think about all those implications, other than just well, is this pitch that's right in front of me a ball or a strike? It missed a little. It missed a little bit off the plate. Was it egregious? No, but I, I do think you know, as a, from a hitter's perspective, I think it's probably too close to take, but one that I acknowledge is tough to to uh, really get a, a good piece of wood on. So I don't know. I mean, it's I see both arguments, but I think you know when you're when you're thinking about it from an umpire's point of view when you start thinking about all these uh, all these other like implications and and all these other things outside of is this pitch a ball or a strike i think you're probably doing yourself and the fans and the and players on both teams a disservice i mean that's fair it's certainly fair it's also just it's something there i'm just more or less saying in the wider look of it if i was uh, if i was beyond the plate there i wouldn't be able to just kind of ignore like the implications and kind of look outside of it and just in the situation it it's just a hard thing to end the season on to kind of to do that especially like in hindsight too when you start looking at like okay where it was charted at especially the 3d chart that ball is very well outside it, it's not even particularly close on the chart there so it, it is it's a bad call and it's kind of funny that you have a call like that that has some significance and I agree 100% that there was other things in this game that Gastonia could have done to avoid being put into this position namely not surrendering five runs in the first inning that would have been the big thing to do uh, but it is in a way kind of funny or at least poetic that the one championship series, you know, the or I guess divisional series rather, of the Atlantic League ends on a poor balls and strikes call, given that they were the league that brought in the RoboUmp and then got rid of it. You know, that's just kind of it's kind of funny that yeah, that is funny. <laughs> I honestly didn't think about it that way, but that's a good point. That's that's pretty funny to think about. Yeah, it, it just it's funny how that kind of thing works out sometimes. And, uh, yeah, it's just, that is just a heartbreaking way for Gastonia. And obviously that's not to take anything away from, uh, from Gastonia this season. I mean, they had a fantastic year. The turnaround we saw was, you know, 
honestly, I hate to use the term unlike anything we've seen because it's such a cliche, you know, like every, everything's like something you haven't seen before. But this one is genuinely like that. Like to just turn this team from having so many problems off the field and on the field to one of the most exciting teams that we've seen in the recent history of the Atlantic League to just kind of proving all the doubt wrong and putting together a phenomenal season and then phenomenal individual seasons as well. It's just unbelievable to me. Like, it's just such a fantastic season uh, for Gastonia as a whole. They got nothing to be, you know, ashamed of there, even if it is a heartbreaking way for the season to end. Yeah, it's definitely a heartbreaking way for for that season to end for them. So, like, you you don't want to take away anything from their unbelievable regular season. But, you know, of course, from a, from a player's side, it's, well, it don't mean a thing if you didn't get the ring. I'm sure it stings, but, I mean, from, from a franchise perspective, you know, at the end of the day, they have to view this year as a massive step forward in so many ways. So uh, nothing, nothing for them to be ashamed of, for sure. Oh, absolutely there. And then, I mean, at this point, before we get into the championship series itself, you know, High Point already, I think, kind of broke the narratives that they were starting to create where they would be a very good regular season team, but they wouldn't win in the postseason. You know, that was something that they always had a, kind of a struggle with. And by always, I mean, like, they started in 19, didn't play in 20. And, you know, the other two years, you know, 19 and 20, they were very good teams, but they just didn't get it done in the postseason. And so, like, are we going to start this narrative with them? They broke that just by getting to the championship game. They proved that, hey, we can win around. There is a pathway forward. Meanwhile, you look across the way, and Southern Maryland has done nothing to kind of beat that narrative down, right? Like, it's... I hate to be the one... Oh, no, I don't. That'd be a lie. I don't hate being the one to continue this narrative. But, like, they still can't win in the postseason. They still just can't get over the hump here. I mean, you had a series. You were up... What was it? Three games to two... Or uh, you were up two games to one. You dropped yeah. game four. Okay, fine. You can still answer back in game five. And then game five is just a massacre. And there's just nothing there that resembles, you know, uh, well, anything of value, to be blunt. And get game five, they had a fantastic regular season. No one's going to argue that. But in, in the end, they just didn't get it done. And again, it's another year where, you know, we're kind of left wondering, like, okay, what is this team? Because as I said, I believe it was last year, they are the Florida Panthers of the Atlantic League. Fantastic regular season. We're always waiting for that next step, and it just never comes. And at this point, I've, I have to believe that there is a better team here, but we're just not seeing it. And I just don't know why that is. I will say this, though, about the Blue Crabs. I, I agree with, I, I think the Florida Panthers comparison is spot on. I will say this, though. Yes. The the Blue Crabs, they had an unbelievable first half, right? Like, yeah. Best team in the first the, half. Yeah, the, the best team in the first half. Um, I mean, I assume their best half in franchise history. Hmm. Um, however, it's not like they were that great in the second half. So... I think I don't want to say that there were signs of this, 
but because I think that's that's putting it a little too strongly. Yeah. I think at the same time though, it's they're they were not the same they haven't been that first half same team for a while. Um and for for a lot of reasons. Yeah. But I, I think it should be acknowledged though that they haven't been that team that was just absolutely steamrolling the rest of the division for a while. And not that they didn't have a good second half because they did. Uh, they, they still, of course, had a winning record in that, in that second half. They went, uh, they went 35 and 30. So nothing to sneeze at. But at the same time, they, they were a far cry from their 48 and 18 first half. Yeah. Uh, and you know, 35 and 30 is not bad. But I just, I just don't. I think that when you, when an indie ball season, there's so much turnover throughout. It's so easy for a team to not really be to be really different from the team that won all those games and put themselves in the play in the position in the uh, to be having home field advantage for a playoff series anyway. And I just, from when I look at when I look at uh, the Blue Crabs, I don't think in the playoff like i don't think it's just a team that didn't perform the expectations in the playoffs because to be honest with you i don't think they were that great of a team anymore mm. um and i think the second half and there's other and trust me there's there's plenty of atlantic League teams you can look back in history and that yeah. they won the first half they kind of chilled the second half and then won the won the postseason series if you want to look look at a great example of that look at the lexington legends right oh, yeah, just a year ago yeah the, uh, the, I mean, the, the Legends steamrolled everybody in the first half. Second half, they had a lot of turnover and did not win many games and mm-hmm. really struggled on the pitching end of things. But they were able to get it back in time for the postseason and made their run and beat the Ducks. But I, I just, I don't think the Blue Crabs were that kind of, they weren't that sort of elite team we saw in the first half. And so I, I'm not surprised that their playoff series went the way they went the way that it went because I don't think they're the team that uh, I don't think they're the team that won all those games in the first half. I don't think they were that team at this point. That's a very interesting theory. And I'm not, I don't disagree with it either just because they didn't really have much turnover in the way of, you know, actual player wise, you know, they pretty much kept the same core together for both halves here. But there was a drop off. They went from you know being thirty games above five hundred in the first half to only five games above five hundred. It's still, you know, a good team. Still the second best team in the division. Just Lancaster kind of got really hot on them, and you know for a while Lancaster really couldn't get the anything going against the team. It was just a kind of men's men's type uh, team, and then you know obviously in the postseason that kind of changed obviously but it is that is a very interesting way of looking at it where it's just like they kind of clicked it off to throw it into just coast mode and then just weren't able to flip the switch back in and you know i i don't disagree with that i really don't yeah i just think that i just think they haven't been that sort of kind of team for a couple months now and i i don't find it that surprising if they ended up 
failing expectations in the postseason. But hey, you know, credit to the Barnstormers. I mean, the Barnstormers had to hit a great second half, and they were playing great baseball going into the series. And clear evidence why they had the they played in the playoffs the way they did. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is there, and I also think it doesn't help too that they ran into a very hot team. I mean, Lancaster was really coming on strong, and it was just a bad time to play them. Even if essentially anyone you're going to get in the Atlantic League postseason is going to be a hot team, it's still, you know, you kind of got to put up a better effort than what we saw here. And it's not to say that there was a lot of bad efforts. We saw some really solid performances, but in the end, it just wasn't enough when it needed to be enough. So, uh, it is another year of disappointment for, uh, for the Blue Crabs, and that's why I kind of stand by the statement I make every beginning of the season, which is, until they do something, I'm never going to pick them to do something. They have to prove me wrong before yeah. I'm willing to, you know, say, this is going to be a team that's going to win a championship. This is going to be a team that's going to go off and do well. Because, okay, <clears throat> you're like the Panthers and even the Carolina Hurricanes. You have some really good players. We're really interested to see. But you never get over the hump. So until you do yeah. that, or until you have a regime change or something like that to where I can't really use this against you anymore because it's just not the same team, I'm just very much inclined to not do it. And it is kind of unfortunate, too, that you have a guy like Daryl Thompson on this team, which has definitely just given his all to this club and to this league. And he just, he really just can't get into the finals. He can't get in and win a championship. Because just imagine if you had a player like Daryl Thompson on, say, when they were in the league, Sugarland or Somerset, or even currently a team like Long Island. Imagine having him on one of those teams. How much that those teams would have won having that kind of an arm on their team? Game changer, yeah. total, total, total game changer for them. And they, when you when you just add an ace in any sense, you you become a, a title favorite like that. Mm. Then also the thought of Lou Ford and Daryl Thompson being on the same team. Now that's a thought. You wouldn't even have to manage. Don't even hire a manager. Uh, really? Actually, I mean, one can do the home games. The other one can do the away games. Simple. Keep it nice and easy. Yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree. That'd be fun. Uh, it definitely would be. So on that note, I guess we can go right into the finals here. Although I did just have a random thought pop into my head, which... I'm just going to throw it here now. I'll go into more detail on my thing to add. But it'd be kind of cool if for like this partner league thing, if Major League Baseball were to do some sort of like a Cooperstown classic thing where like maybe either the weekend of the Hall of Fame induction or one of the weekends either leading up to or just after it, they were to have like a couple partner league teams come up and play at the field they have up there. And kind of do like an annual game like that. Because obviously it's not going to work for a major league team. That steam's just not up to par for it. It's one thing you want to do kind of your, you know, spotlight games at either an old Negro League park or at the Field of Dreams or, you know, Fort Bragg. You can get away with it for things like that. You can make them major league quality. But that Cooperstown one is just not going to be able to get to that point. So you could definitely use like, the partner leagues for that, which are probably going to be a bit of a higher standard, going to have them trying a bit more to win those types of games and not going to have the same kind of restrictions the affiliated teams will have. 
playing in that kind of a game and that kind of an environment. I think that'd be kind of a cool thing to do. And even if it's not with Major League Baseball, it still may just be cool to throw one game up at those ballparks a year as like kind of a classic thing, either in between leagues or just one league each year gets to go out there and play a game or a, a small series, a short series, like a two-game set in Cooperstown, you know, at some point in the summer. I think that'd be kind of cool. I don't know why. I, I agree. That would be that would be cool. I mean, I, I think I could have sworn that the MLB you, back in the day used to do like an exhibition, like Hall of Fame game. But uh, I think that, yeah, that would be a great idea. I'm all for that. Yeah, like I, I feel like this is the kind of thing that especially like with the whole partnership and co-branding and all that that we heard. This is the kind of thing that could very well happen. I understand the Baseball Hall of Fame and Major League Baseball aren't necessarily one and the same, even if they operate similarly. But it just—it was just a random thought that came to my head. I don't know why, but I just wanted to throw it out there before I forgot it. It just seemed like a really cool thing to have. And it could also kind of be like, for lack of a better term, the uh, the indie ball version of like the... Uh, the Hall of Fame game, or not even that, more of like a Winter Classic type thing, I guess it would be, because it's more of a marquee thing where it's like, look, you're going to a special location, you can play a couple games there. I understand there's a whole bunch of financial things, and it's not as easy as just saying, all right, uh, Tri-City, you're going to play Ottawa this year, you're going to play them over here for two games. One team's going to be the home game for one, one team's going to be the home game for the other. Like, I understand it's not that simple, but it would, I just think it'd be really cool to kind of do that and have like different historical, uh, fields there. I mean, you could even, you could even really make it a whole event and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there. Maybe that's an idea to revisit later on, but yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's could be something to talk about for sure. Yeah. So on that, now we'll actually get into this uh, championship series. Uh, game one was on Tuesday night, the 27th, Lancaster, High Point. This one, while it was a 6-2 uh, final, uh, Lancaster taking the win there, it wasn't nearly as lopsided as you would think. And people probably won't believe me when I say a 6-2 game was a pitcher's duel, but this genuinely was for a non-insignificant amount of time. Lancaster got on the board first in the first inning. They put up one run. No more runs until the fifth, where High Point got a run to even it up. And then no runs until the twelfth, where it just started turning into a scoring fest. Yeah, it's it was a game where, first of all, I mean, Brooks Hall, what a season he had for the Barnstormers, and what a great postseason he had. He's been their best pitcher all year long, and he brought his A game uh, against against High Point, and I mean both pitching, and of course Mickey Janice on the other side for for High Point, the knuckleballer. Uh, I mean he just he just really dazzled uh, for for the Rockers too. It was a great great pitcher's duel. The bullpens, for the most part, did a really good job. I think you I think you were just at a point uh, in the twelfth inning where Cotter comes in mm. and just just struggled to throw strikes and kind of led to a couple big hits and then it kind of uh then it kind of just blew open but i think that uh i mean it was a great pitcher's duel from both sides specifically brooks hall and mickey janice and um and i mean the bullpens for both sides for the most part did a good job uh oh, just yeah. that one bad top of the 12th inning and that's going to happen as you specifically with an indie ball team when you when you reach that point in the game and you're going deeper and deeper into your bullpen uh, that's going to happen, and uh, the Barnstormers, uh, they jumped on They they really uh, jumped on them in that 12th inning, 
and they're and they kind of like singled him to death uh, right. to drive in a lot of those walks. But I think that you know that's what happens when you put when you put a lot of guys on base via via the walk. Uh, and that's what'll happen. So, I mean, uh, a big a big road win for the Barnstormers that they needed. They they're probably looking to just split in high point. So, for them to get that first win and the pitchers duel the way that they that they did, uh, they they it would be it, they really needed to have a win in a Brooks Hall start, and they got it. Uh, so, a really big game one win for them and a great game. Oh yeah, I mean Brooks Hall's had a hell of a year. Starts the year off in Lancaster, pitches very well, gets picked up by the Mets. Stays there for a while. Actually, saw him pitch in Somerset this year too. I I wasn't even planning on going to see him pitch, but then I uh, when I got there, I checked the, the board they have that you know lists all the starters and whatnot. And I was like, oh, Brooks Hall, and I was like, I remembered this name, and I looked up. I was like, yeah, he was with Lancaster earlier this year. That's kind of cool. He had an okay start. wasn't a great start from the one I saw, but anyway, winds up getting released. Winds up coming back to Lancaster and just picks up where he left off in the Amish country just dominating and you're right they needed a win in a brooks hall start he gave him six strong innings three hits one run ball struck six out did his job bullpen comes in and for the next five innings they surrender what one hit no walks i mean you can't ask for much more than that and then you know a tunnel comes in for that last bit he surrenders the one run but he still got the job done in the end high point side I kind of, I'm not going to lie. I don't know why, but I kind of forgot about Mickey Janice for a little while. And then obviously he came out here and he pitched pretty solid. Not as good as Brooks Hall. They went the same amount of innings, gave him the same amount of runs. Just instead of walking one, Janice walked three. And instead of giving him three hits, he gave him four. Not as many strikeouts. And he, the one run was a home run. And obviously the bullpen wasn't as good to give two hits as opposed to one hit. I know, terrible. But they went just as long, and then Cotter just, I think, got the, the short end of the stick on how that wound up working out. But, yeah, no, it was a must. I don't want to say it was a must win, but when you have your best pitcher on in a playoff series like that, uh, when you're away, you would like to get at least one run, or you'd like to get that win because the next game is going to be a bit more difficult, or so you would think in a series like that. Yeah, hundred percent. It was so uh, it was it was big for the Barnstormers to get on the board uh, on the road for sure. Mm. Yep. And then in game two, it wasn't quite the same way. It wasn't quite something I would call a pitcher's duel. As High Point got on the board first, put up one run. Lancaster got it back in the next half inning, scoreless third, fourth inning, two runs for High Point. Next half inning, Lancaster cuts that lead in half. All of a sudden, it's a three-two game. High point looks like, okay, maybe they'll have it at the end of the six. They wind up putting up another three. So now all of a sudden, okay, it's a, it's a six, two ball game. Not looking great. If you're Lancaster, if you're high point, you're like, oh, right. We can go back at least split. We'll have to take two or three. That's what the mindset is. And then the seventh inning happens. And well, that mindset has to change when you give up seven runs in one inning. Don't get any back in the bottom half of that inning. Then give up another two runs in the top of the eighth. To wind up losing uh, eleven to six, going down the series two games to none, and that's uh, that's not how you win baseball games. I'll tell you that. No, this is this game was a, and of course you know go, beyond the obvious of going down 0-2 when you were when you had home field advantage. That's tough enough, hmm. but just the way that the that the Rockers lost this game and 
it's a gut punch. It yeah. really is a uh, a t- a total gut punch. I mean, when they had, um, you know, they had a six-two lead going into that seventh inning. I mean, that's a really that's a really tough one to swallow. And of course, you know, I mean, game one, uh, game one, it was the total opposite of game two, but just a, it was a disastrous day for the, the high point pitching staff in general. Um, and uh, I mean, you, you know, you got to give a lot of credit to uh, to the Barnstormers, you know, and uh, a lot of guys with with three hits as well. I mean, Andretti Cordero with with two hits as well. Melvin Mercedes with two hits. Uh, Anderson Feliz with two hits as well. I, I mean, you had a you had a lineup that uh, I mean, I mean, hell, even let's mention Trayvon Robinson working yeah. four walks in that game. So uh, I think that you, you gotta. You got to give a lot of credit to the Barnstormers, and uh, and you know, unfortunately, and the the big thing also, I think uh, you have to look at as well that uh, had I think a big impact on this game, the double hook DH rule, where mm. uh, where you know where Atkins only went inning in a third, and they had to, and they lost that spot in the lineup. Yeah. I think that's that certainly has a big role. Maybe not initially, but when you get later in the game, it hurts. Uh, when you lose a guy like Xander Wheel, uh, who's been so good for you all year in that DH spot. Yeah. Uh, so uh, at the end of the day, I mean, it's it not obvi- and like I said before, beyond the obvious of going down 0-2 when you had home field advantage, like the way they lost was just devastating for high point. Yeah. And it also doesn't help in that case too, that Atkins got hurt that early on, not just from the DH perspective, but also because you just had a bullpen that got stretched the night before and you just had to go 12 innings, use up a lot of arms. And now all of a sudden you got to turn around and go, Hey guys, I'm going to need some of you to throw more innings today. And that's really where it went off the rails. You know, you see O'Sullivan come in the four and two thirds, giving up three runs not the end of the world. You probably could have survived it. But Frankov gives off gives up two, only getting one run or one out. Hensley only gets one out. He gives up three. He was another guy that pitched the night before and was used heavily this season as well. So that's just arm fatigue at that point. And obviously, I, I don't think Jamie would have liked to go to Hensley there. I think he just kind of felt like, I don't have many other guys that I can go to. So he just had to. Rincon was fine, one earned run. It's not, you know, and at that point, the damage was already done and Mott pitched well. And it just, it's a just a bad bit of luck for High Point at the worst possible time because they had their chance. They jumped on uh, Nile Ball uh, early on and uh, they had their opportunity and they just could not take advantage of it because they... You know, they had that bit of bad luck. And so then they wind up now having to go to Lancaster down two games and nothing. They have to basically reverse sweep the team in order to advance on. And that's just such an uphill battle. It just was never going to be able to happen just because of just what would have been required to do that. And uh, I don't want to say the writing was on the wall at that point, but, you know, it wasn't looking good. No, it wasn't looking good at all. And I mean, at that point, it's it's so hard to come back from losing and going back to, and going down 2-0 uh, when you had home field. 
So, I mean, it put them in a really tough position. And, uh, I mean, you knew the, you knew, you know, the Barnstorm was going up too well going back home. Going to have a big energy boost from their crowd. And man, did they. Uh, I think, I mean, we'll get more into that when we talk about game three. I mean, they had an unbelievable atmosphere. Uh, And, yeah, it's just, it put the barn, it put High Point in a really tough position. And the Barnstormers, I'm sure, felt like, at that point not that it was over but certainly trending in that direction oh yeah and i mean at that point we might as well just jump right to game three and and talk about that because it was last night and you had a ruckus crowd of over five thousand there on a friday night so already it's going to be a good environment you'd love to see those kinds of environments for championship clinching games and that's why i love whenever they line up so that way it'd be friday saturday sunday because that just gives you the best odds of having a really good crowd and from early on i mean we kind of knew how this was going to go high point only scored one run this whole game lancaster did that three times over scoring multiple runs in an inning uh starts off with three runs in the first they get the run back from high point in the second and in the sixth they put up another two and this is just largely because they could not touch de la cruz I mean, Oscar De La Cruz pitched the probably the game of the year, going nine innings, surrendering four hits, one run, eight strikeouts. That one hit or one of the hits in the run was a home run, but ultimately he just went out. He dealed. Craig Stem did a good job on the other side. Only two earned runs. It was six runs in total against him, but when it's only two earned, you can't really put too much on him there. Nine hits against him, one walk, five strikeouts. Uh, one uh, some of the runs were earned by a home run uh the bullpen did fine the bullpen didn't give up anything but at that point i think high point or that uh rather lancaster was probably just playing more of a let's make sure we're playing mistake free baseball and get out here with a win we have a five run lead so uh not uh not a great day for the rockers but a fantastic day for Lancaster. They clinch a championship. They get the win. And De La Cruz gets your series MVP and very well deserved after the outing he had. Yeah, I mean, uh, what else can you say about, about Oscar De La Cruz? I mean, he just was dazzling. He kind of took the wind out of their sail. And I think it also takes a lot of the pressure off him when you uh, when you when the Barnstormers offense jumped on you know, they jumped on Craig Stem the way they did. And, and, you know, I mean, High Point's defense certainly didn't help them either. Yeah. Uh, so it should it should not all be put on Craig Stem either. But I think it, it takes a lot of the pressure off when, when in a game like that, you go down, I mean, four to one after two innings. And it takes a lot of pressure off a guy like De La Cruz who can just kind of settle in, throw strikes, attack the zone, uh, make, make his defense, make plays for him behind him. And, uh, and that's exactly what they did. And just, I mean, again, I, I should mention again, like just an unbelievable atmosphere there. I mean, the home run, it, it almost seemed like, all right, High Point has a chance, High Point has a chance. And then the, the Trayvon Robinson home run in the sixth inning, yeah. I think that that was kind of the point where like, okay, like that's, that's the dagger. There's the knockout blow. Uh, when they're kind of hanging around, hanging around, hanging around, and then the Robinson home run. And, and it, uh, what a great guy to do it, too. A guy who's been he's been around the Barnstormers for a long time. He had some stints in, like, AAA and stuff. 
uh, an indie ball veteran as well, uh, an Atlantic League veteran, and for him to do that in that big spot was was great. And you know, he uh, that really did seem like the knockout blow for the Barnstormers, and that uh, that pretty much did it. And just you know, great scene when they won too. I mean, hmm. it's an organization that I mean they haven't won since 2014, and in a division that has largely been run by the Ducks. It was great. It was great to see somebody new in that division come out on top, and a, a, a place like Lan- like Lancaster deserves it. So it was really cool to see. Yep. Now, and this is going to be very weird for me to say for quite some time. One of the oldest teams in the Atlantic League. In Lancaster, they get that win. And we've seen a lot of teams this year across indie ball break long droughts. I mean, uh, Grand Junction hadn't won since 81. The uh, Fargo-Moorhead hadn't won since I believe it was 2010, 2011. Uh, we saw Quebec, who, I mean, they, they always win. So they're not really included in this. But they have gone since I believe it was 2018 since they've won something. So we haven't had a lot of repeat champions, a lot of of dynasties here across the board we've seen a lot of you know teams that are historic they've been around for a minute and now they're kind of getting back to winning ways or they're getting that win that's eluded them for so long so it is great to see that and i mean it was a it was it was a series which honestly i don't think either one of us would have said it's going to be lancaster and sweep i wound up i know before game one just saying oh, i got lancaster and five but i think high point's going to have the run differential and that was more or less just to have a hot take of sorts. And, uh, you know, in the end, I was right that Lancaster won, but wrong about everything else. I mean, I did not think at all, like I said, it was going to be a sweep. Uh, and I certainly didn't expect to see such a, a dominating performance in games two and three out of the Barnstorms. I really thought High Point would take, at the bare minimum, a game. Uh, but it, I guess that just speaks volumes to Lancaster. They showed up and they kept battling back when they were down. They never really stayed down. And I mean, that's what you need to win. Right. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're a team that, again, they played such a great second half and they really established themselves as, I mean, the, the best team in the North Division throughout the, for the, for the last two months. And they, they showed up, they proved that. They got great pitching uh, this series, which has always been the question for them. They, we know that Barnstormers can hit. They've always been able to hit. I mean, especially at the ballpark that they play at. But have they been able to get the starting pitching and, and their bullpen as well? I mean, that that was the big difference for the Barnstormers this year, that they finally, finally, finally were able to get the starting pitching uh, accumulated that they needed uh, to, to make a run. And that's that's always been the missing piece for them. And when they did, they combined it with this terrific offense and they, and they were able to take it all the way to a title. It was always just a matter of when the Barnstormers and Ross Peoples could get that starting pitching. They finally did. And th- look what happened. Yeah, I know it, it was a fantastic run there. And, you know, it, I think Lancaster's win shows how difficult it is to win in the Atlantic league and to win in Indy ball as a whole. Because you can build the best team in the first half. I mean, look at look at Southern Maryland, look at uh, Gastonian to a lesser extent, look at High Point, the three other playoff teams, all very strong first half teams. And then in the second half, High Point very much gimped into the postseason. They managed to get a very big series win and a very big upset of Gastonia. Southern Maryland was not the same team that they were. And, uh, you know... 
you had Gastonia obviously getting bumped off in the first round there despite being so hot the whole season it really shows like you have to build a good team from the start have the bones there but you got to be in a position where you have to keep playing you can't just let off the gas at all because if you let off the gas there's no saying you're going to get it back and uh you know they managed to do that you're 100 right they finally got the pitching to back it up uh we no longer had to do lancaster era checks on them because there was no need to do it and uh yeah it, it just was a season that worked out really well for them it's the kind of season where you know i'm honestly really happy with how everything shook, shook out really with all four teams i think i would have been all right with you know either southern maryland gets a championship finally high point gets that champion that's, that's eluded them for a little bit Lancaster, you know, they have a story. They finally get there. Or uh, you have just such a fantastic turnaround in Gastonia that it ends the way it should. You know, so I'm I'm happy with how it ended no matter what. And, uh, yeah, I, I think you couldn't ask for much more out of the Atlantic League this season, even if uh, it obviously had some flaws in of itself. Well, I mean, I, I think you could ask for some more yeah. from the Atlantic League this season. But I think that it was cool. Kind of to see a new look playoffs, right? A, yeah. a new look, new look teams. Because you know, as great as the Atlantic League is, I think in the last, when you look historically, especially from like you know 2015 to 2019, there really was not a lot of parity. Oh, uh, there was it none. Was, it it was, was summer. It was Somerset, Long Island. Sugar they Land. would end up. They would. Yeah, right. So Long Island, Somerset would battle in the playoffs every year. One of those two teams will come out and and move on to the championship. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, from that stretch, it was more often the Ducks, and you would look at, and then show, it would be Sugarland in the other half. So, and then you would see, all right, well, who in the fr- uh, Freedom Division at the time no, uh, would, would 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 come out on like who would challenge them? Sometimes New York, sometimes it'd be it'd be, Lan- it'd be Lanca- at Lancaster, sometimes it'd be Southern Maryland, but it'd always usually be Sugarland on top. Um, and so, you know, with all the all that movement, it was it was nice to see a team like the Barnstormers, who's who's been around the Atlantic League for a little bit, them able to come out on top. And High Point's opportunity will come. Jamie Keefe has done an unbelievable job there, the and building that roster. Their their time is coming. They will have a title uh, in some point in the very near future. But it just it's just hard to come back from losing two games on your home field, and that's I think what we saw. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. One thing that's interesting to note, the four playoff teams are the top four in ERA, which is kind of weird to have Lancaster as a top ERA team. I mean, hell, the top ones were Gastonia at a 3.89, Southern Maryland at a 3.98, Lancaster at a 4.47. High point for anyone that cares is a 4.58. But it's kind of weird. You have two of the worst pitching teams from last year turn around to be the second and third best this year. And it's just, it's a fitting way to end that off. But yeah, it was a, a rough go from high point there. But you're all right. It is nice to have new teams in there because, I mean, everything you said was correct. Long Island and Somerset, whoever wins gets, you know, Sugarland because Sugarland got to play some poor ritualistic slaughter team that would just go out to uh, Texas, get beaten up, and then go back home. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's, that's how it works for way too long so uh atlantic league 2022 done we look at atlantic league 2023 going forward uh we do have a little bit of cleaning up work to do on the atlantic league we got some awards we got to get through i remembered over the course of doing this 
We do have two other pieces of news that I just never wrote down, which is we bumped the uh, Mark Mason news to this week, so we should talk about that briefly, as well as Pete Incogvili getting his contract re-upped as well. So we'll talk about that briefly once we get through the awards. The awards are nothing uh, too special. It's just, you know, your standard end-of-year awards out of the Atlantic League. Uh, kind of more the uh, postseason awards is how they call them. It's not for playoffs. It's just end-of-year awards. I hate when teams do this and call it postseason instead because it's just more confusing uh executive of the year award went to friend of the show and interviewee pete fish if you want to listen to that interview you can go back to the archives and do so uh the promotional excellence award goes to the charleston dirty birds promotion of the year was the lancaster barnstormers um that is just awarded to the event of unique impact. I believe this one, let's see, they're recognized for two specific promotions. First was the War of the Roses as the headline attraction. And then, uh, let's see, the second was rebranding the team as the Lebanon Iron Masters for a weekend to honor and celebrate Lebanon County, located just north of Lancaster County. Uh, mascot of the year was downtown from the york revolution uh ballpark of the year was truest point ballpark in high point and the outstanding community service award went to the stant island fairy hawks uh whilst i pull up the next press release any thoughts on those yeah i mean i'm always very pro downtown he's one of my favorite one, yeah. one of my favorite uh one of my favorite mascots so um yeah i mean i not a whole lot to add on it, but I think that I, I'm a big fan of downtown, so yeah. love him getting named mascot of the year. Yep, uh, I'll say this much: it's probably a good thing to see Southern, or, uh, not Southern Maryland. It's probably a good thing to see Stan Island get named uh, the winner of that community service award. Very yes. important for for them to have that. Now, to yes. what extent? Really important. Yep, to what extent they deserved it or did not deserve it, I don't really know. As most of you are aware from listening to the show, we don't really have time to focus in and follow one particular team because there's about 40 others that we have to follow and keep up to date with the different leagues and whatnot. So I'm not really sure, you know, how on they were about that. I hope it's a very good deserving award because for a team like Southern Maryland and a market that you really need to be involved in that you really have to get out and that you really have to win over because they will spot you out and throw you to the wolves if you're not uh it's extremely important that they are in the community there so i really hope it is and i do recall a lot of you know community service acknowledgements throughout the year so i'm hoping that it is deserved as well handed i just don't know so i can't say but that is one that i saw and i was like okay that's a very important win there uh, going on to the next one, it is your typical red, white, and blue all-defensive team. Uh, at catcher, Ryan Hogg, Southern Maryland. Uh, at first base, Nelly Rodriguez, York. At second base, Melvin Mercedes, Lancaster. Shortstop, Jack Reimheimer, Gastonia. Third base, Michael Russell, High Point. Outfield positions are Braxton Lee, uh, Southern Maryland. From Gastonia, both Reese Hampton and Jake Skoll. And the pitcher from Southern Maryland is Mitch Lampson. Uh, again, trying to find defensive player awards in Indie Ball is hard because there's just not too many defensive metrics that are openly available. So I will again assume that those for probably the best fielding percentage-wise are just past the eye test, one or the other on it, uh, and we'll go off of that. 
Yeah, I think that's the. It's so tough when there's not really any metrics to really go off of. So, kind of just got to assume that you're right. Feeling percentage, they made the plays they should. They and or were extraordinary defenders in some cases. So, yeah, I'm gonna have. I'll say I agree, but I don't really know if I agree. So it's hard. It's, yeah, it's really hard when there's no, uh, when there's not a lot of metrics out there for any indie ball defensive team. Yep, definitely. And unlike in this next one, which is your end of year all stars. Again, it's technically postseason, but we're going to say end of year, so it's not confusing. Uh, there is no further explanation in the end of year one. We do get at least a, a two-page press release that explains, you know why certain people were picked and the stats behind them. So that's good, at least. I'm not going to read through all of it uh, because I'm sure all the press releases are up on the Atlantic Lake website. You just go there and look. Uh, but the team in the lineup goes as follows. Catcher, Jovan Gonzalez, Charleston. That's very weird to not see Somerset there, but okay, we're going to run with it. Uh, first base, Andretti Cordero, Lancaster. Second base, Joseph Rosa, Gastonia. Shortstop, also Gastonia, Jack Reimheimer. Third base, Carlos Franco, York. Outfield, uh, these are of zero surprise to anyone. Uh, Courtney Hawkins, Lexington. Alejandro Deaza, Long Island. And Xander Weald, High Point. Uh, DH, David Harris, Southern Maryland. And as well from Southern Maryland, Daryl Thompson and Andres Bersinio. Closer, Jesus Balgar, uh, Gastonia. That is how that shakes out there. Um, I th- we don't have a pitcher of the year yet. We do not have a batter of the year yet. At least I, don't I wonder see. who those will be. Yeah, I think it's, we all kind of know hmm. uh, those ones there. And I have a feeling the batter of the year is probably going to wind up being Baseball America's uh, indie ball player of the year as well, because I just don't know who the hell else it could be. One would think. Well, one would think. The one guy I do want to give a shout-out to, Jovan Gonzalez on this list. I mean, talk about a guy that, I mean, has turned himself into – I mean, he hit 313 this year as a catcher, and he's a really he's a great defensive catcher as well. Uh, I really never saw – even though he was a, certainly a serviceable hitter in Somerset, never saw him hit like this. So uh, really good to see for Jovan. He's one of the best guys. And, and anyone who listening who followed Somerset when they are in the Atlantic League, Knows the knows all about Jovan Gonzalez, and he is the best guy out there. And it's so good to see him uh, kind of bump bump up that offensive production that uh, didn't see a whole lot of in Somerset, but he's certainly uh, he's certainly thriving in Charleston, and that's that's awesome to see. He's one of the best around. Yep, definitely, you'd love to see that. And uh, yeah, on that note, that's all we really have for the awards here. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Pete Incaglia, he wound up getting a uh, an extra few years there. He's back for at least next season uh, in Tri-City. I don't really think that's any surprise. But yes, they haven't made the postseason. Yes, they've gotten off to slow starts. Is there a better manager available? No. If you let him go, will you get an opportunity to get him back? Also, no. So it just makes sense to bring him back. Um as we said, I'm trying to find the release here for the Mark Mason news, so that way we can talk about it. Uh, here we are. Mark Mason resigned his position with the uh, York Revolution. This was back on the 22nd, so not this past Thursday, but the Thursday prior to that. Actually, the first day of fall for what that's worth. Yeah, he he's out. They're going to be looking for a new manager. 
Mason had over 600 wins with the York Revolution, second longest stint with the with one team in the league's history, kind of a fixture there for the past 13 years, and uh, one of the most winning managers in the history of the Atlantic League, by far the most in the history of the York Revolution, so it does come as a bit surprise. Uh, I definitely did hear a little bit about something like that, but not enough for me to even really think about it too much. So it is definitely a change of pace in York. It is definitely a tale of two different uh, moods in the Pennsylvania teams. One's searching for a manager. The other one is celebrating a championship right now. And it's just kind of funny how that all works out. Yeah, I think... I think, and I, I don't, and however York wanted to word it, they they can word it. Hmm. I think I will say, I don't know if you agree with this, Nick, but I yeah. think that the, it was all it was just time. Yeah. Um, and I don't know the the whole reasons of what Mark Mason wants to do now and whatnot, but at the same time, like York has been pretty rough the last two years. I mean, they just have. Then in 2019, they had a they had a good they had a they had a great season in 2019, and you know, as so many other teams do in the uh, former Freedom Division, they uh, they lost to the Sugarland Skeeters. But I think Mark Mason, like, just at the, at the same time, they just have not been able to develop the pitching that they needed to to compete, uh, especially over the last two years, and I I. I could see, especially he's been there a long time. He's accomplished a lot of great things uh, with the York Revolution. But I, I just, from my perspective, from an outside perspective, just the way the last two seasons have gone, and they just really haven't been very competitive, and they've been pretty consistently under 500 the last two seasons. The, I, I'm sure, of course, I'm not, I'm not saying that they that York fired him. I don't yeah. know that, uh, but I think. From an outside perspective, I think maybe both sides just knew it's 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 probably time to go in a different direction. That, that's fair enough to say. I mean, obviously, you're not going to uh, you know outright come out and say like, "Oh yeah, we fired the guy that's you know built up a large chunk of this team." So it very well could be that. Uh, I do also agree. The last few years really just have not uh, not been good for York. So that very well could be it. He's a guy that's been around a long time. He has so many wins. I mean, across his career that does stretch, you know, uh, nine seasons in York. I think I misspoke earlier. I said 13. I meant to say 13 uh, years coaching. He has nearly 800 wins and 1,600 games. Exactly 1,600 games played. So he does have a lot of success in that regard. You have to imagine if he wants to manage again, he can, but I guess we asked the question of, does he really want to keep going on? I mean, if let's say he genuinely resigned and it's more or less just, I don't want to do it anymore, as opposed to more of a, you know, I want to move on to a different place type of thing. I'm sure there'll be people or teams that come knocking. I'm sure teams will want to, uh, to hire him because he's a good manager. But it is kind of interesting, uh, interesting to see that kind of a change. Normally you don't see managerial changes in indie ball and especially you don't see them uh like this so it's it's kind of interesting there and i'm going to be very curious to see who winds up coming in for york you know we haven't seen too many manager hunts over there so now they got to do that and they got to find the, the right name and i don't know who that name is yeah it's a big hire for them because you know at the end of the day uh 
you have to you would have to i mean the barnstormers you wouldn't think are going anywhere staten island is a vastly improved team in the second half of the season mm-hmm. maybe you're thinking of them hey could this team turn into the next gastonia next year i don't know uh and I mean, and you'd have to think Long Island too. Uh, after the a really, really disappointing season for them, is not going to go down quietly the way they did. So this is a big hire for York there, or else you don't want to fall into kind of like the, the relevancy and uh, in that in that North Division. So it's a it's a really big hire for them, and you know, I just, you don't you don't really want to speculate on what the reason is. Because when you, when the you know the press release is so vague, but I do think from my from an outside perspective, I think it was just time for both sides. Yeah, definitely. And you also have to keep in mind too. Hagerstown is going to be coming in in a few years as well. Sure. So that's something you also have to keep in mind as far as uh, you know a possibility for their, uh, for another challenger in that North Division. What will hopefully sure. become that North? So it yeah. it keeps getting more and more difficult there and i mean obviously when you're fighting for a wild card too then you have to bring the south into it and you're always going to probably have one of gastonia high point and lexington in that fight or at the very least you never know what could happen with uh, west virginia so you know that's that's just how it is so we will see how all that plays out I'm not sure if anyone saw on uh, Twitter too. There was kind of an interesting thought posed by one of the reporters out in uh, West Virginia, which is that maybe with Turf Field going into uh, the Dirty Bird Stadium, maybe that they could host a a team. So it'd be a team split between Lexington and Charleston next year. So kind of like the Genomes, but the Genomes would play half their games in Lexington, half of their games in Charleston as far as home games go, and then obviously the road slate too. I saw that idea posed, and you really have to hope that's no. not going to happen because no. how bad of an idea no. would that be, Will? I already have a feeling you no. don't like that idea. No. No. No, 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 no. No, no. No. We, we cannot do this. No. You, you, you're, you're going – you can't fund a profitable – it's really hard to be profitable for an indie ball team when you're doing stuff like I don't care if it's half. I don't care if I don't care if it's half the when you have a team when you have a team playing just just like playing as a home team at a ballpark the, the community has no attachment to it's tough to ask them to come out and pay tickets and whatnot. So I I don't think it's a good idea. I I don't know how I don't know how realistic the I don't know how like close this is or whatnot, but not a good idea. Oh, and wait, you mean to tell me that players aren't going to want to spend half their time in West Virginia, half their time in uh, Kentucky? And I don't think so, no. That's a tough sell. And it's a bad idea for a team that can't draw 2,000 fans to add like another 30-plus games onto their schedule? That's a bad that idea. Seems, that seems like a poor idea, yes. Yep, and then our friend Ryan pointed out another really bad idea or bad idea part of this whole situation as well. He said, you know, and uh, he said, I was like, you know, that's also a very good point. You just rebranded this team from the power to the Dirty Birds. So you're going to introduce another team with another identity into this town to try and not confuse people even more? Yeah, I I, I just don't. There's no benefit to it, except the Atlantic League doesn't have to go to the Road Warriors. That's the only benefit to it, really. Which, I mean, I got to be honest. I don't, I don't think the Road Warriors would be that bad. And if you were going to do it, you probably should have done it this past year because if you would have had a traveling team, it could have probably helped out 
the way that Staten Island feels because he could have juiced their schedule to kind of give them some teams there or give them some games there to help them out a little bit. Probably could have been a good idea, you know, get the the new market that's going to be here a while kind of doing good, even if they're not that good. You know, possibly could have been a good idea, but, you know, just, just throwing it out there. I saw that. But, uh, yeah, when I saw the we could split home games idea, I was thinking this is such a bad idea. Did we learn nothing? Yeah, not a fan. Not a fan at all. Yeah. But yeah, so I think that's just about it for this week. I don't think there's too much else to talk about. I'm kind of surprised with the lack of games and the lack of really news coming out that we managed to get this long into a show. But, hey, I'm not going to complain about it. And uh, it certainly was a, a decent show. I think it was pretty solid there. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so we will wrap up the indie ball season now. There are no more indie ball games we played anywhere, which is kind of crazy to think. We'll go into off-season mode uh, starting next week. Uh, we should have an interview for you, if I'm not mistaken, next week, I think, or is it the week after? It is the Following week me. after. Yep, that's right. That's right. So we'll tell you more about that next week, but we are getting into interview mode. Uh, certainly, yes, right. You are right, Will, because, and this is bad because I'm the one that was doing the scheduling for it. So it's bad that I didn't remember that. But what's more important is I remember this because I put it there because I was like, oh, no way Lank is just going to go, you know, and go out in short order. Because I figured if High Point wins at least one game, then we're going to have a game on Saturday. So we'll have to talk about the series the following week. And I want the interview we have because it's actually extremely interesting. Um, I want to be able to put that one front and center. And if we're talking about a series, we can't do that. So, uh, yeah, not next week, week after interview. Going to be good. We're going to try and get back on to doing a lot of those in the off season because, well, they're great for killing time. And also they're interesting and people like them. So, yeah. Uh, on that note, we'll go to the plugs. We'll get out of here. Uh, you want to follow the show, you can do so on Instagram at ALPB underscore news and at Indie Bar Report. You can do so on Twitter at Indie Ball Pod. You can find the show wherever you find podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Podbean, um, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all the usual spots. We should be back up and running on everything. Going to formally uh, cancel the service with the one uh, probably mid this week. So I'd make sure that we are on the new feed. Make sure you've gotten episodes. I guess it'd be 184, 185, and now this one here, which obviously you would have gotten this one if you're listening to this right now. So just make sure you have everything. Make sure it's all in your usual spots. If it is not, again, please reach out. Let me know so that way I can do something to fix it. So that way when I cut the cord here, uh, you will still be able to get the show. That's very important. I want to make sure of that. Uh, that said, uh that's pretty much all we got there are there's going to be show notes on the website for this there's going to be you know all the episodes up there as well we're gonna to have to go through and fix all the embedded links so if you listen to the show on the website uh we're gonna to have to go through for pretty much 183 plus episodes that are up on the website which i just redid over the winter, uh, we're going to, have to redo that again, just so that way those links are active and working. Uh, that will probably get done some point next week, uh, before or just after we do that switch over. So just keep an eye on that. If when you go up there, it's not a hundred percent, no, it's being worked on, but there are still show notes and other things on the website as well. So, uh, that being said, do we have anything else left to add this week? I will say, uh, 
Rutgers football. I assume that the game will be over when by the time this is posted. But thirty-nine point underdogs at Ohio State, just looking for the cover. <laughs> See, that's the kind of Rutgers attitude I always look for. We don't expect to win; we expect to cover. We expect to cover thirty-nine. That's the goal. Uh, I guess all I got to add, in addition to there being hockey coming on soon, like meaningful regular season hockey, and in addition to uh, you know my idea, because I was thinking about it a little bit more, I do think a Cooperstown Classic, which would be a very good name for it too. It's it rolls off the tongue. It, it's uh, very memorable too. I think that would almost be, you know, the kind of perfect place to do. Maybe not entirely my idea of you know have an Indie Ball World Series as has become the popular term as opposed to Indie Ball Memorial Cup, and I understand why. Um, maybe this would be the perfect place to get you know an exhibition game in. I think that would be good. At the very least, you know, maybe you go ahead and you pair like East and West All Stars, where you kind of draw a line with the two Western more leagues. You know, your American Association, your Pioneer League, they send one team. The Atlantic League and the Frontier League send another team. That may be a really cool way of doing it. You know, there's a lot of ideas here. This could oscillate. You know, I'm going to save a lot of these ideas because I think this is perfect off-season bait. This is the kind of thing you talk about in the off-season when you have one week where nothing happens and you're not able to get an interview or you have an interview and it only goes like 20 minutes. This is the perfect topic for that. So I'm going to save that. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I got for this week. Uh, yeah. There we go. Yeah. So on that note, we will end this show like we end every show. And while it may be a little bit of time before we actually get to see this in a professional independent league baseball stadium, don't forget to play ball.